It is an intimidating word that Jesus gives. Isn't it Matthew chapter 5, verse 48? Jesus says in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, He says, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anybody here perfect? I didn't think so. It's intimidating, isn't it? It's intimidating because you think, gosh, it, it feels like a lot of pressure. Perfect? How am I going to be perfect? And it's interesting, too, because if you look at the context in Matthew chapter 5, it's really clear Jesus is talking about something that we are to pursue right now. He talks about, you know, you know how you know, unbelievers, they love those who love them, but I call you to love your enemies and to, good, to do good to those who persecute you and sin against you. He says, therefore, you shall be perfect. And he says, clearly, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's not saying perfect Perfect means mature. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he doesn't just mean mature as in the best you can be. He means the standard that he wants us to grow into is the standard of God himself. That's crazy. Have you, have you, have you ever just let that sink in for a minute? That God is actually calling us to a standard that is beyond our comprehension, or at least it was until we've seen Jesus walk the walk. And so what we're going to talk about today in this section, in a real brief way, this is going to be, it is going to be brief out of necessity. There's things we have to talk about. But we're going to talk about this goal of perfection because perfection is what every Jesus follower is destined for. This is what God calls us towards. So there's three main things we want to talk about. First is we want, to, we want you to understand that this goal of perfection, it's assured through the work of Jesus. Paul says really clear in verse 7, he says that, but to each one of us, and he's contrasting what he had said before in verse 6. Notice in verse 6 he'd said that the Father, there's one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And now he's switching to and each one. So he's been talking about unity, and now he's saying how unity works with diversity. Each one of us has something that God wants to give us or has given us. He says, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, in a very simple way, what Paul's saying is, Christ gives each of us this grace to serve. It's not talking about saving grace here. Obviously, we get that through Jesus as well. This is talking about what we might call serving grace. That's what the context is going to bear out. Paul said a similar thing in Romans chapter 12 when he said, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. And then Paul quotes in verse 8, Psalm 68, when he says, when he, that's God, ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, if you read Psalm 68, I encourage you to go back and do that, you'll see Psalm 68 is what we might call a victory psalm. It's basically God's people crying out to God, saying, God, lead us in victory again as you have in the past. You, you brought us out of Egypt. You, you, you uh, basically, we, we, um, we got all kinds of riches from the Egyptians. You, you received all those gifts and then you, you, we gave those things back to you to build a temple that you could dwell in, and you showed yourself victorious over the gods of Egypt. That's really what the psalm's about. And so he's quoting this psalm, and he's wanting to apply the psalm to the work of Jesus, because he, he says this in verses 9 and 10. 
He says, now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, there's all kinds of interesting ideas about what this can mean, but we're going to keep it really simple for time today. He says, he who has descended into is also one who ascended far above all heavens, that he, that is Jesus, might fill all things. Now, what he's talking about here, he's using this language that Jesus himself used in John chapter 3 about the fact that Jesus, of course, being God the Son, first came to this earth. He was incarnate as a man. And then he walked this earth. He did what God called him to do, and he went back. This is what the Scripture says. Jesus says in John 3.13, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And what he's meaning by that is he's saying, Look, I have this position in heaven as God the Son, but I've come here now clothed in human flesh as, as, God, or as the Son of Man as well. It's also what Paul was getting at in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to this. Philippians 2, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. It's a really good paraphrase. Listen to this. It says, Though he was God, speaking of Jesus, he did not think it of equality with God as something to, be, to cling to, Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appears in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, he says, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So what Paul's saying here in Ephesians is similar to what he said in the Philippians. He's talking about this this Jesus who is exalted as the name above every name. First he humbled himself and became a man. That the humility comes before the exaltation. So think of this this way, your perfection, your maturity, your becoming like Jesus, that is an exaltation. We, we hear that and we think, oh, pressure, i got to make this happen. But the whole reason Paul is starting with this reality that of what Jesus' work is, is so that we know we're trusting in His work, that it's His, His incarnation, His humbling of Himself, and His finishing the work of God perfectly, and His being exalted in the heaven, that's what qualifies us to expect that we are too going to be exalted up to heaven, that we're going to see God face to face, that we're going to be made like Him. It's assured by His work. This is really important. The Scripture talks about in, in, in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Another translation says that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Think of it this way. It's like you're in this forest that no one's ever been in before. It's all full of undergrowth and shrubbery. How are you going to get through that forest? Somebody has to go first and and cut that path. Jesus cut that path. He cut that path. He, he, He died on the cross for us to guarantee that we would be forgiven, that our sins would be taken care of. He sent His Holy Spirit to make sure that we could walk that path and Paul's wanting us to recognize, listen, it's going to be a tough path. It's a very specific path, a narrow path, but it's a path that you're assured to get to the end to as you walk with Jesus because he's already been there. Now, he goes on to say in verse 11, this, this really, really important, he gives us really kind of um, foundational verse. It's really important to what we are as a church and really what God would have us be as his people. He says, for he himself and he himself, that's Christ 
himself. And it says he himself because he's using a word, the word, the Greek word is to emphasize. Jesus has done this. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. Now, you might remember earlier in the book of Ephesians, we talked about this phrase from Ephesians 2, verse 20. If you want to turn back and read that quickly, you can. In Ephesians 2, verse 20, uh, this is what Paul says. He says uh, that, that the household of God has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So the way, G, the way Paul has used this phrase, apostles and prophets, in Ephesians before means something very specific. So there, there is in the scripture a truth that the word apostle is used for all different kinds of people. Um, there's a word where Jesus uses apostle um, as really anyone who follows after him, any sent one. And so in a very real sense, every Jesus follower is an apostle. They're sent out by Jesus to tell other people about Jesus. We all have that responsibility. Do you know that? I mean, do you guys realize that? I hope you know that. That when Jesus calls you to follow him, part of following him, he says, right, what did he say to his disciples? Follow me and I will what? Make you fishers of men. He, he calls us to be with him so he can send us out for him. So we are sent out ones. That's what the word apostle means. Also, though, there's this, there's this picture of apostleship with guys like Barnabas. Barnabas was an apostle, or I think Apollos is referred to as an apostle in the New Testament. And it's, it's like one who's sent out maybe specifically to do like church planting mission. There's that kind of apostle. But this is not talking about that. Because this is fulfilling, or, or is the same along the same lines as, as Ephesians 2.20, where Paul's talking about apostles as in the 12 apostles. You know, there was Judas who got bumped out and then Matthias took his place in Acts chapter 1. But these 12 apostles, who what they say is the foundation for what we do. In fact, it's really important for us to recognize when it says that he himself or Jesus himself gave some, we need to see that Jesus has the one who's chosen the men who would testify of him. So there's, uh, uh, you might say, a foundational uniqueness to these apostles and prophets that's different than anybody else in history. This is really important to understand. Let me read a couple of verses to you to back this up. In, in Acts chapter 1, here's what we see again. I'm reading from NLT because it makes it easy to understand. It says, so now, this is Peter speaking. He says, now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us, that's his ascension, whoever is chosen will, will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So there was a unique responsibility that these 12 guys had to testify of the historicity of Jesus, of the reality of what he taught, and of his death and his erection, his erection, sorry, his ascension and resurrection. That's what's supposed to be there. That was a, photo, a really bad slip, wasn't it? This is being recorded. This is why I hate that it's recorded. Everyone's going to know I said this. YouTube, here we come. All right. This is what it, that these guys were meant to do. This was their responsibility. And it's a unique responsibility. Now, the reason this is important to talk about is there are Christian traditions that actually believe in something that's called apostolic succession. So, so groups like the Catholic Church 
or the Eastern Orthodox Church. They believe in what's called apostolic succession. Also, the apostolic church believes this. And it's an idea that the apostles had an authority whom they transferred over to the next generation of guys they discipled who transferred over to them and so on and so forth. So there's some Christian groups who believe in this thing called uh, apostolic uh, you know, succession. And that's where the authority comes in, they would say. There's also cult groups that believe this. Mormons would say this. Have you ever had these really nice, cheesy-looking American Mormons that come to your door? This is one of the things that they will, com- they will claim, that we have apostolic succession. Now, theirs is a bit ridiculous, but still, uh, they will claim that. Now, now what the idea be- uh, behind apostolic succession is, is that we have to believe what the church fathers taught. So I'll use the example of Eastern Orthodoxy. You'll know why later, a bit later on. Um, but what they believe is that the authority over the church is all holy tradition. Holy tradition would include Scripture, but it wouldn't be limited to Scripture. So they would say what's really important to understand how we interpret Scripture is through what these church fathers said. The problem is the church fathers didn't always agree. That's why they had to get together and debate and talk about things and come up with the creeds. Now, the creeds are things that all Christians really believe, but still, there was this reality. Now, I want to be clear here. I think the Bible teaches super plainly that there isn't an apostolic succession, that the authority that the apostles had, that that authority remains through their written words. Let me give you an example why I believe this, okay? Listen to this. In Galatians chapter... One, Paul says this, Paul says, let God's curse, it's pretty serious stuff, fall on anyone, notice, including us, who's us? The apostles. Including us, or even an angel from heaven, which is where the Mormons say they got their their information, uh, who preaches a different kind of gospel than the one we preach to you. Do you see what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, listen, it's not us, personally, that have this inerrant authority. It's the message that God gave us. It's the word God gave us. That is the standard. That is the authority. Interesting, if you go on in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 2, you see where this comes to pass. Galatians chapter 2, listen. It says, this is when Paul's writing, and he says, but when Peter, one of the apostles, came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face For what he did was very wrong. In other words, the apostle made a mistake. He said, listen, when he first arrived, he ate with Gentile believers, that's non-Jews, who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, Peter would not eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. Now, the reason I underscored friends of James is for this reason. James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. James had an apostolic authority. Listen, and James sent representatives. James, you could say, an apostolic succession. He said, you guys go on my authority and go see what's happening. The problem was they were bringing something that was false. Peter knew it was false. These guys should have known it was false. And so because it was false, they were basically saying, if you're going to be a Christian, you got to become a Jew first and be circumcised. Then you can become a Christian, which is totally false. He says, this is what they have to do. And so what happens? Paul rebukes in your face. What are you doing, Peter? You're being a hypocrite. You might preach the gospel, but you are actually demonstrating a false gospel because you know the Gentiles are acceptable to God through Jesus the same way you're acceptable to God through Jesus. 
And so he rebukes him. Again, the reason I'm saying this is that it's not the apostles as men, though they were chosen by God for a purpose. It's the, it's the responsibility they had and the message that God gave them that was the authority. It's really important to understand. This is why, listen, this is why we always go back to Scripture. This is why we, we, we make great efforts to teach what the Bible says. This is why you'll often hear me say, there's one right interpretation of Scripture. I'm not assuming I always get it, but that's what we're going for. We're trying to see what's happening, what, what God has said through these apostles. Are you following me? This is important because what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about how do we reach this goal of perfection? Well, one, it's assured through the work of Jesus, praise God for that, but also it's got to be according to the Word of God. It's got to be according to what God says. If we're going to reach maturity, if we're going to reach perfection, if we're going to get to the place that Jesus wants us to be, guess what? It's going to have to be according to what He says. We can't do it apart from Scripture. Now, he goes on to say in verse 12, he says, for here's why he's given these guys, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now I want you to notice when it says, some people want to say there's five things in verse 11. There's five positions. There's apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. But actually the way it's worded in the Greek and in the English, there's four things. Pastor and teacher are the same office. You can be a teacher and not be a pastor, but you can't be a pastor and not be a teacher. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Now, so there's a reality that there's these four offices. I bring this up because one of the, the trends right now among other evangelical churches, which would be kind of our stream, and, and charismatic evangelicals specifically, which would be kind of our stream, is what's called the five-fold ministry. It's a desire to restore what they call a five-fold ministry. They would say that the reason the church lacks power and effectiveness is because we need to go back to Ephesians 4.11 and have these five offices in every single local church. But Ephesians 4.11 isn't talking about five offices. It's talking about four at the most. And actually, the offices that still exist are not apostles and prophets. That's the word now. The offices that exist are evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, what do these guys all have in common, though? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. What do they all have in common? They speak truth. They speak truth. And why do they speak truth according to verse 12? They speak truth for what? For the equipping of the saints. For the edifying of his people. In other words, what my job to do is to do, and Adam's job to do as a pastor teacher, we are to teach you. We are to equip you. Interesting, the word for equip literally is perfect. We are to see you grow in maturity to equip you, guess what? So that you can equip each other. Now, we're going to talk more about this when we get to 14, 15, and 16 in a second. He goes on to say, verse, verse 13, how long does this last? He says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the, and the knowledge, literally the perfect knowledge, of the Son of God. Now, he's talking about here, this reality that Jesus is going to set the standard for our perfection. And he's also talking about this reality, it's important for us to understand, that we're not there yet, and that we won't get there yet until we see Jesus face to face. This is important. Because remember we talked about earlier, last, last week we talked about that we need to endeavor to keep 
the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, that we already possess the unity of the Spirit. So we don't create that. We have to just maintain that. We just try not to mess it up, basically. But the unity of faith is something that we're pursuing. We don't have that yet. We're pursuing the unity of the faith. Now, we believe really clearly that there's, there's, in, there's church little c, as in local believers gathering together in the name of Jesus, and there's church big C, as in everyone who's been born of the Spirit in all churches in all the world. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? Some people say the visible church and the invisible church. Now, it's hard to discern sometimes if someone in the little C is actually also part of the big C. It's hard to discern. Sometimes we get shocked by who we, we don't know if they are there or not. It's really difficult. But there's a reality that, that, that God is doing something in us that won't be complete until we see Him face to face. There's a reality that we need to be humble and sober about. That is that we, we, we're both already there in one sense. We're already unified with Christ, but we're also not there yet. In other words, we can recognize the faith, but it doesn't mean that we're unified in the faith. The reason that we can recognize the faith is because that's what the Bible says. Listen to this. Jude writes, Beloved, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude writes this little postcard epistle to, to, so his audience can recognize what is the faith. And he's saying, look, we have the faith. We know what we're supposed to believe. We know who is the object of our faith. It's Jesus. We know how he wants us to worship him. We have that already. We just need to know how to walk in that. But also there's a reality that we don't know yet. There's a lot of stuff that we just don't fully understand. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul writes, Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. In other words, we're not there yet, but we're looking forward to the day when we're there yet because then we won't have to guess anymore. We'll know as we're known. Now, look again at verse 13, because Paul says, he writes, coming to the knowledge of the Son of God, he says, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, Christ is the standard. He sets the standard. Now, it's interesting. Not only do we kind of, or we're both already there, but we're not there yet, but we also, like I said, just both know, but we also don't know yet. L listen to this, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John says this, Dear friends, we now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, and all who have this hope in Him purify Himself just as He is pure. Do, do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, listen, we don't even understand fully what, what it means to be perfect in Christ, perfected in Christ. But here's what we do know, we're going to get there. And because we have that hope, you know what we do? We pursue that perfection. We pursue that maturity. We pursue that, that purity. That's what he's saying. Now, quickly, last point. In verses 14 to 16, this goal of perfection is assured through the work of, of Jesus. It's according to the word of Jesus. And it's with the whole body of Jesus. We cannot reach this by ourselves. God intends us to mature, grow, be perfected within the context of a local 
church where we are committed and people are committed to us. He says in verse 14 that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickiness of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, you could say harmful methods. He says we're not supposed to be this. In other words, listen, we should be no longer children, but we should be growing up learning to recognize and refute false teaching. That is everyone's responsibility. That's why we try to teach you the Bible. And this is tricky, guys, because some, there are things that we don't agree with other churches in. We just don't agree. But they're not necessarily false teaching, so just we just don't agree. And so it's a, it's a hard thing to make sure you know, here's what we're about, but other people are about that, and we can agree to disagree. Or here's what all Christians are about, and you have to believe this, or you're not really a Christian. That's, that takes some doing for us to get our head around it and then explain it to you so you get it. You know what that means? We've got to put a lot of work into this, and it also means you've got to put some work into this. You need to pay attention. You need to listen. You need to ask questions. And you need to do it together. But one of the reasons people get pulled away from the truth is because they never talk about what they're struggling about with. It's amazing how often this happens. People will be wrestling with doctrine, wrestling with ideas, and they won't talk to anybody. They'll just stew over it by themselves. Next thing you know, they just walk away. Like, what's going on? What happened to you? Why didn't you come and talk to us about this? Guys, listen, I, I hope nobody here feels intimidated to share what their perspective is about what they, what they see the Christian gospel saying. I hope nobody here feels like they can't say, well, what about this or what about that? I hope nobody here feels like that, that they can't ask the tough questions or make objections like, I have a hard time with that idea. I remember someone coming to me once saying, listen, I want to talk to you about something, but I know it's probably offends you and I'm sorry. And they, it's like five-minute diatribe of why they felt so bad. I'm like, just ask me, it's fine. They said, I really struggle with the whole idea of hell. I don't know if I, I can believe that. I'm like, me too. That's a hard thing, man. If you don't struggle with it, you probably don't have compassion on people or you don't really believe it's real. If you believe hell's real, it should bother you. You should go, God, that's a serious thing. Well, how does it work? Why does it work that way? You know, how do I know that I can avoid that? How can I help other people avoid that? I should take this seriously. There are lots of things in Scripture that we should wrestle with. We're called to wrestle through them together so that we can learn to help each other to recognize what's a false teaching and how do I refute it. The reason I say refute, not just recognize, is because, interesting, the word for children here is the word for an infant who can't speak. The idea is, don't be just baby, he just goes, I don't know nothing. Be able to articulate your faith. Now, I know that everyone has different gifts. Not everybody has, you know, oratory gifts and they can explain things well, but we should still be able to understand enough about the basics of who Jesus is and what he's done to be able to explain that to people and to help people to, to keep us on that road. Because at the end of the day, that's what keeps us on the road, is recognizing who Jesus is, what he's done. Now, he says then in verse 15, he's instead of being like children who, who can't recognize and refute uh, false doctrines, so we get tossed to and fro, he says instead, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, that's Christ. In other words, what he's talking about here is a need for us to teach one another. Do you know the Bible commands that? In the same way the Bible commands that we pray for one another, the Bible commands that we teach one another. Well, but I'm not a teacher. Well, you're, you, maybe you probably aren't a teacher. 
Not many should be teachers who stand up here and do this. It's a big judgment when you do that. But we're still called to teach here. Listen to this. This probably have to skip a slide to get to it, but this is Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is not a word to pastors. It's a word to everyone who's in the congregation. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is why we should sing loud and long. Because when we sing truth, and we try to make sure we're picking songs that we're singing truth, when we sing truth, you know what we're doing? We're teaching and admonishing one another. Yeah, there's the vertical, God, we want to give praise to your name. But there's the horizontal, we want to bless our brothers and sisters by teaching and admonishing them in this truth that we're singing loud and long. And notice what he says in verse 16. From whom the whole body, joint and knit together, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. In other words, listen, when we're talking about this reaching this goal of perfection that, that Jesus has died to make us able to do, he says it happens as every member actively participates. Christianity is not a spectator sport. The only people that have the excuse today, sitting here, to only sit here and to not think, Lord, how would you have me serve or bless my brothers and sisters are those who aren't yet Christians. You're still wrestling with it. We want you to sit and just relax. But if you know Jesus... God has graced you with gifts that He intends you to use to bless somebody else. Now, now here's one of the traps we get into. We get in this trap of, like, well, what's my gift? What's my gift? What's my gift? You know, you don't need to do that. Do you know for every gift that's listed in the Scripture, there's a corresponding command that everyone's supposed to do? So there's a gift of teaching, but there's the command we just read, teach one another. Do you see what I'm saying? So you could, you, God calls us to behaviors and actions that we're not necessarily gifted at. We're just not. But we, why do we do them? Because we do them because the body is edified. What does it mean to be edified? It means to be built according to plan. What's the plan? What's the blueprint for Christianity? His name is Jesus. Jesus is the blueprint. To be edified means to be built up to be grown, to be made like Jesus. Guess who does that? All of us. All of us. It requires all of us. I'll close with this, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says, There are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministry, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but notice, it is the same God who works all in all, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. You know one of the mistakes we make as charismatics, as people who believe in the gifts of the Spirit for today, that God still does supernatural stuff and that everything listed, not just some of them, but everything's, you know, you know the mistake we make? We, mistake the, we make the mistake of pursuing things that are going to make us feel edified. And we're supposed to pursue the things that bless other people. That's what we're supposed to pursue. Because God is going to get us there. 
but we're, he's not going to get us there on our own. He's going to get us there as we cooperate together and pursue that. 